my name is Ryan Schreckengast. Uh, I'm one of the preachers here at GFC. Uh, and last week, Tom Hallman, for his sermon, brought in a gavel, uh, which, first of all, I want to know who authorized him to use that. But anyway, he did. Uh, and it was wonderful because it was a great way for him to emphasize Luke's argument, which was that Paul, who is on trial, was found not guilty. Bang! He was found not guilty by Rome. Bang! Not guilty by Jewish law. Bang! And most importantly, he was found not guilty by God. Bang! And yet, despite all of that proof of Paul's innocence, this morning in our text, he is still on trial. And he will continue to be on trial basically until the end of the book of Acts. Even though there was all of that proof, he's still there. Why? What is really going on? What is the main issue here if all of this proof has been presented? Well, this is where this week I would love to have some equally engaging visual aid, like Tom had, but... I don't. (laughs) And the reason that I don't have a visual aid like that is because although there are many reasons that Paul's accusers claim that he is on trial, the real issue, friends, is very abstract. Paul is on trial because of resurrection. And I could not for the life of me think of a visual aid that demonstrated that. So if it seems a little bit obscure to you, this idea of resurrection, then you're in good company because many of the audience of of Paul at his trial found it obscure as well. But it's true. And I hope that this morning we will see as we read Acts 24 that the issue of resurrection is not merely some abstract philosophical or theological concept. But it's essential to those who are listening to the trial of Paul and to those of us who are here in this room or on Zoom this morning. In fact, the temptation that we face today is the same as the temptation of Paul's audience then. And I hope that you recognize this morning the very real danger that we face of putting off dealing with this issue of resurrection. So this morning, let's start by turning to page 878 if you have one of the church Bibles. And we're going to read Acts 24, verses 1 through 9. And we're going to start by hearing the accusations that are leveled against Paul. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight most excellent Felix, reforms are being made throughout this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man, 
a plague. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which he, we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. In these beginning verses, the accusations are framed against Paul. He is a rioter. He is the ringleader of a divergent sect. And he is an irreverent defiler of the Jewish temple. Those are the charges that are laid against Paul. And like any good spokesman, Tertullus opens up with some pretty heavy flattery in verses 1 through 4. Did you hear all of that? The gist of it is, oh, Mr. Civil Representative of an occupying military force, we love you so much. Thank you for hearing our poor plea and for civilizing our, our poor people who are just incapable without you here. Please hear this minor request that we place before you. And remember that the framing of this should remind us of the situation of this trial. Paul has arrived in the city for this trial under guard of 475 elite Roman soldiers who are there protecting him because of a threat to his life that happened when he was in Jerusalem. And so at that trial in Jerusalem, Rome had done everything it could to keep this problem of Paul handled internally among the Jewish leaders. But only because of the threat of violence against a Roman citizen have things escalated to this point where Paul is now standing before Felix. And so Tertullus has to do everything in his power to paint Paul as an instigator, not as the victim of this threat to his life. And that's what he does in verses 5 through 7. He lays out these three specific charge. First, Paul is a plague. He is a rioter who stirs up all the Jews in the world. Secondly, he is the ringleader of a heretical sect. And third, Paul is an irreverent blasphemer who has attempted to defile the Jewish temple. Again, this third point especially is, is masterful manipulation on the part of the high priest. In particular, because he claims that Paul, quote, tried to profane the temple, but we stopped him. Okay, this is, this is an interesting twist from the claim that was made back in Acts 21, verse 28, where the Jews had been following Paul throughout Asia, these, these people who had been following him city to city. And they said this, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Do you notice that subtle shift? 
from he has defiled, by bringing in Greeks, (laughs) to he tried to profane the temple. So why is this change there? I think it's probably just because the charge is completely unfounded. And it would have been impossible to prove it. But much harder, on the other hand, to prove that he didn't try to profane the temple. But we stopped him. So what is Paul's defense? What does Paul bring up uh, as, as a defense against these three charges? Well, let's read verses 10 through 21. And we will see that Paul addresses these charges. And yet he focuses his audience on the main issue of resurrection. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came up to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing I cried out while standing among them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. In these verses, Paul addresses all of the charges, but he refuses to lose sight of the real issue that he has been proclaiming from the very beginning, resurrection. So let's start by looking at each charge. But this morning I'm going to do that a little bit out of order to help us see that focus that Paul has. So Paul absolutely refutes the first charge, that of being a rioter. In verse 11 and 12, he says that he didn't dispute with anyone or stir up anything in the city or the synagogues. He also refutes the third charge of attempting to profane the temple. In verse 18, he says he was found in the temple purified. And we remember back to Acts 21 that this was the case. He went to the temple in Jerusalem specifically at the behest of the elders 
to complete this purification ritual in accordance with the Jewish law. But it's the second charge, that of being a ringleader of a heretical sect. That is where Paul begins to get to the real heart of his defense. Paul says in verse 14, I confess. But what does he confess to? Well, he confesses that he follows the way which, in fact, worships the God of the Hebrews. And he believes everything he confesses in the law and the prophets. In verse 15, he makes a direct reference to one of those prophets, Daniel. Daniel 12, 2 describes the time of the end, saying this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Paul says, I believe this. I confess that as a follower of the way, I believe the prophets, this is true. So why the big uproar? Why 475 soldiers to guard him? If the hope of both Judaism and the way is this resurrection of both the just and the unjust, according to verse 15, then why do we need this army to protect him? Because Paul is claiming that the way is not a sect. It is an authentic expression and in fact the necessary path of true Judaism. Paul does not refute the fact that he is a ringleader. He confesses to it. But he claims that he is in fact a ringleader of true Judaism. He is progressing the work of Yahweh God. And he is proclaiming his truth to the nations. And the focal point of that truth is this issue of resurrection. Paul says in verse 21, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. And this is the claim that he has been making all along. He is referring to what he said before the Sanhedrin, before every single court that he has faced from the very beginning. He claims that the Christ is Jesus. That the hope of being found just and awakening to that everlasting life rests not on nationality or on ceremonial cleanliness, but on the substitutional sacrifice provided by God in the person of Jesus. And that is a big claim. According to Paul, that is what it means to be the chosen people of God. 
Paul explains it like this to the church in Colossians 1, verses 18 through 20. He, that is Jesus, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to him all things. All things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The issue, friends, is resurrection. And Paul keeps the focus there during his trial. He addresses all of these accusations. He refutes the charges that are untrue. Not excuse me, Um, he refutes the charges that are untrue, but he does not let them overshadow the truth of the resurrection. He is not a rioter. He is not irreverent. But he is a ringleader for God. So how does this apply? Friends, the main issue at Paul's trial was resurrection and the main issue in your life today is resurrection the most important thing in your life is the death and resurrection of jesus christ let me say that again the most important thing in your life is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. While there are many other important issues, important issues, none of them will ultimately determine how your soul or anyone else's is handled at your resurrection. And yet, I confess that I find myself thinking and talking about pretty much anything Except the resurrection. How about you? We have no shortage of issues that demand our attention. Social justice, discrimination, COVID health issues, freedom of speech, abortion, scientific theories, international politics, national budget, and on and on and on and on. And while all of these issues are genuinely important and worthy of our time and consideration, I ask you to consider how often do these issues eclipse our conversations about resurrection? How much time do you spend discussing resurrection with your friends? How much time do you spend thinking about resurrection In your mind. Paul very clearly. Has this idea. Of resurrection. Forefront in his mind. Above everything else. Even his own freedom. He has this idea. Of resurrection. 
So consider how differently you would frame all of these other important issues if resurrection is there at the front. Friends, this life, as we said this morning, is not the end. It is not the end all. There will be a resurrection. And although justice is important even before Rome, it pales in comparison to the promise of justice that we have in Jesus Christ. And so this should free you, friends, to strive on this earth for justice in our own lives, but not to despair when injustice is all around us. Because it is. But the promise of the resurrection is that God's justice will end not with our destruction, but with our life through Jesus Christ. And that is the hope of the resurrection. And yet, as I already said, isn't it so hard to keep that perspective Day and day and day in our lives. The demands of everyday life just drown out that concept of resurrection. And that's exactly what Paul faces in this next portion of today's text. So let's read verses 22 through 27. And we will see the reluctance with which we so often face this main issue. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speaking about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Here is a stark example of the reality of the reluctance of human hearts to address this most important issue of resurrection. It turns out that Governor Felix actually has a history with Christianity. Verse 22 says that he has a rather accurate knowledge. And and that was possibly tied to his Jewish wife, who may have been connected and, and been aware of this movement within Judaism. So Governor Felix has both a professional 
and a personal reason to be informed about this, the way, Christianity. And I find it interesting that this is actually the first time in several chapters where someone actually knows what's going on. We've spent a lot of time talking about the confusion and the misunderstanding. And here we have a governor, Felix, who gets it. He has good information. The best information. And what does he do with it? Verse 22. He puts off making a decision. He puts it off. In verse 25, we see that the best, most rational, most region apologeticist Paul speaks to him about faith in Christ Jesus. And he is, quote, alarmed. And he sends him away. Why does he do this, friends? Because the issue that he is reasoning about is righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Verse 25 tells us this. It is about faith in Christ Jesus and the resurrection from the dead that we are talking about. And he can't handle it. That is heartbreaking. This is a judge A man with a Jewish wife who has experience in both Roman law, lowercase l, and Hebrew law, capital L. And he has a rather accurate knowledge of Christianity. And he speaks in his native tongue with a Roman citizen for two years about the real issue. And he puts it off. There was no one better equipped to understand the issue of judgment and righteousness and resurrection than this guy, Felix. It is literally the perfect storm for the gospel. But instead of believing, he is alarmed and he's hoping for a bribe in verse 26. (laughs) What? How, How does this happen? How... Can, can God use this situation? Because we know how this part of the story continues. In verse 27, he leaves Paul in jail. And he never makes a decision. How hard must this guy's heart be? But this morning, consider... How hard our own hearts are. I don't want us to point at Felix. Think about how we can apply this text to ourselves. And I have two ways that I'd like us to do that this morning. First, if you are still questioning the validity of the way of Christianity. If you're unsure, do not Let your heart delay you from making a decision. You will be tempted to reluctance. When you understand what the Bible says about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, you may be alarmed. 
And that is not the wrong response. But the response is that you must understand that faith in Christ Jesus is what makes the difference in your coming resurrection. That is the issue. Don't put it off. Don't let your your alarm or any of the other issues drive or drown out your ability to hear the word of God and to place your trust in the one place where it is safe. In the justice available through the Son, Jesus. My second application for you this morning is for those who are like Paul and are testifying to this issue of resurrection to those who are around you. If you are testifying as a child of God in your actions and in your words, be encouraged that God's kingdom grows against all odds into the likeness of the resurrected Christ. That has been our theme throughout Acts. Even though it seems like Festus has missed it here and that Paul's time, two years, are wasted, they are not wasted, friends. God is progressing Paul exactly where he wants him to be to testify in every new court about the resurrection. So even when it seems like your best opportunities for the gospel just fall flat on their face, even when it seems like your years of faithful reasoning come to nothing, be encouraged that the kingdom of God grows into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because Paul's ultimate destination is not to stay here. It is to serve as a witness in Rome and ultimately to be resurrected. So don't be disheartened when your own family, the ones who should know your love for them the most, fail to see the gospel as the loving message that it is. The main issue is resurrection. And that resurrection comes not through what we do or what we fail to do or the outcomes that we see in those around us. It comes through faith in Christ Jesus. His name is the hope that we have. And it's His kingdom that will grow no matter what happens. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, this morning for Jesus. That our hope is in his resurrection. God, that that you sent your perfect son to die that we might live, God. Lord, we thank you that you are working in us and through us. Lord, in the hard things, in the, the confusing things, God, we know that you are in charge. 
when our country is raging over issues, God, we know that our hope is only in the resurrection of Christ. Lord, I thank you, God, that you do everything needed. Uh, you you, You do it all, God, and we thank you for that, God, because we can't do it ourselves. Amen.